in 12 hours and 50 minutes, is that correct? We will enter a new year. What are you expecting to happen this new year? Some families here, including ours, are actually expecting. And maybe you've cut your expectations back because of our weird COVID world where everything seems to keep changing. We're shifting again now in this country to a different work week and weekend or many other things that you may have faced in your life that have caused you to doubt whether or not your expectations will actually come true. Well, if I were to begin reading for you, you will also have expectations about what will follow. Let me give you a few examples. Once upon a time, So what do you expect will follow? Write a fairy tale you expect. Or if I were to give you this headline, Pakistan beat India by 10 wickets. Now, some of you still have no idea what a wicket is. But for a lot of us, you would expect an article about a recent cricket match that was actually held here in the UAE. And so when we read, we have expectations based upon the very first lines of what we read. In fact, the ancient Israelites also brought expectations to what would follow. And in our text from this morning, Psalm 16, the psalmist opens just like an individual lament would normally open. Preserve me, O God. This is an imperative, a command to God. And so what we would expect, what the ancient Israelite expects, is for the psalmist to then move in to calling upon God to intervene and going into a series of complaints to the Lord and petitioning him to resolve his situation. But instead, what we find is that the psalmist jumps over these normal elements and moves right to his relationship with God, who God is to him, and who God is. So we might think of this psalm, Psalm 16, as a lament overtaken by trust. As we look forward into the new year, We bring with us the baggage, the struggles, the fears, the anxieties, pain from the current year. But David in this psalm embodies for us a brilliant strategy to flood our minds and our affections with the goodness of the God who never abandons but satisfies us with his presence. Now, the titles of the psalms were added later, and this psalm is called a miktam of David. We don't really know what a miktam is. Perhaps it was a type of song, or perhaps it was something that was inscribed in stone. We do know this is of David. Now, that could mean David wrote this psalm as he wrote many other psalms. It could also mean it was written in the tradition of David, for use by God's people to worship God in 
the temple. Now, I would suggest we adopt the former view because, not least, Paul and Peter preach from this text and they understand David to be the poet. And that will become significant, you'll see, as the psalm unfolds. In verses 1 through 4, David cries out to God to preserve him and states his delight in and loyalty to God. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are all my delight They are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. David calls on God to preserve him. He then skips the lament and he jumps right to a list of at least four things that he has done in verses one through four. Why does David call attention to his own delight in and his own loyalty to God? Why why wouldn't he just jump to God's gracious and trustworthy character to preserve him? Well, in effect, what David is saying is, God, take care of me because you're not just Israel's national deity, You are my personal deity. And here's the proof. Jesus said it this way. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So David gives us four proofs that Yahweh is his God. First, he has fostered the habit of taking refuge in God when he's in distress. When you are in distress, have you fostered the habit of taking refuge in God? Second, he calls Yahweh, Israel's covenant-making God, my Lord, that is Adonai. Some of you have heard that term before. This was the most common term for kings to use of themselves in the ancient Near East. So what David is saying is, I am the king of Israel, but you are my divine king. I am under your sovereign authority. This morning, are you still acting like the Lord of your life? Or have you submitted your life under the good authority of God as your king? Can you say with joy as Jesus did, not my will, but yours be done. That's what it means to be able to call God Adonai, your king. Third, David says, I have no good apart from you. Elsewhere in scripture, we see that we are totally bankrupt of any goodness apart from Christ. That truth is displayed all over the word But here instead, the idea is, you are the source of every good thing in my life, or every other pleasure in my life is nothing compared to having you. Is God more precious to you this morning than any other thing or any other person 
in your life. Fourth, David delights in the saints, that is the holy ones who are in the land. Who are these? These are the faithful remnant of God's people. This morning, do you find joy in God's people who are walking with Christ? The apostle John writes, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very own lives as well. Fifth, unlike the unfaithful who are burdened with sorrow from their idolatry, David resists the temptation to offer blood sacrifices to other gods or to call out the names of other gods. In many ancient writings, gods were invoked by name for blessings and for curses and even for exalting those gods above other gods in the ancient world. In our culture, we have so many gods surrounding us, swirling around our lives from which to choose to worship Have you compromised your fidelity to Christ? Or can you say with Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In verses five and six, David shifts his focus away from his delight in and loyalty to God unto God himself. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David here paints three images of his relationship with Yahweh. First, chosen portion is a term used of one's share in war spoils, or in other cases, of one's share in possessions. And so what David is saying is, in place of my share in the war spoils that I deserve, or other things that should belong to me, I'll take you, Lord. You're the one I want. Second, my cup refers to one's serving of a drink to satisfy one's thirst. In place of my drink, you're the one who satisfies my thirst, Lord. Third, and these next three actually cluster together under the same idea, my lot refers to a lot for dividing land. The lines refer to the allotted piece of a field. And a beautiful inheritance refers to your inheritance from the tribe of your father. David is grateful to God for sovereignly placing him exactly where he is in the land. What about you? Have you developed the habit this morning? Have you developed the habit in your life of thanking God for himself and for his sovereign wisdom in placing you exactly where you are? Here in Rasulhema, 
in 2021, looking into what might be in store for you in the year ahead, in your job, in your family, among the people around you? Do you see your lot in life as, as cast by just the winds of chance? Or do you understand that your lot in life is precisely in place by the sovereign goodness of God? Even as you cry out to God in distress, as David did in verse 1, preserve me, O God. Can you see the beauty in the countless good things that God has planted in your life right now? In verses 7 to 8, David blesses the Lord for his counsel, presence, and protection. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, my heart also instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. To whom do you turn to first for counsel and guidance? Now, Proverbs 14, 11, 14, 14, 11 is true. In the abundance of counselors, there is safety. But who do you turn to first? We don't know what was going on in David's life here, but we can piece a few things together. Preserve me, O God, opens the psalm. And then we have this language here, I shall not be shaken. And in the night, we get the impression, in fact, that David is facing something that could terrify him, that could overwhelm him, but he doesn't give in to paralyzing fear. What is his strategy? Notice the synergy between Yahweh's work and David's work. Yahweh counsels and is stationed at David's strong hand to defend David. While David chooses to bless Yahweh, listens to Yahweh, listens to his conscience, which Yahweh is counseling, and actively puts Yahweh before him. That is, he sets his mind on Yahweh. Have you developed the habit of joining God in his spirit's work in your life? Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. As a result of this satisfying relationship with God in verses 1 through 8, David in verse 9 now describes how he really feels. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. There is no reason here to see this as some kind of superhuman, out-of-body ecstasy, nor is it forced joy. I think of the mandate of Prince Humperdinck in The Princess Bride, and there will be joy. No, David here feels happy. He's just straight up happy. The heart was the place of thinking for the ancients, and one's whole being, literally glory, 
refers to what makes somebody unique. Elsewhere, it's a synonym for the soul. And flesh refers to the body. So David is so thankful to Yahweh. He's thankful for Yahweh's presence and goodness. He's turning to Yahweh for counsel. He's thinking about Yahweh. And as a result, his mind, his soul, his body are flooded with joy. David's dopamine and serotonin levels were probably quite elevated. But notice that verse 9 begins not with because, but with therefore. His emotions are not the source, but the result of singing the truths of God's goodness in his life. In verses 10 through 11, David closes his prayer to the God who never abandons, but always satisfies. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What did David have in mind when he says God will not abandon his soul to Sheol or let his Holy One, that is David, see corruption? The meaning in the context of the Old Testament and the ancient Near East is that God would protect David from the realm of the dead, the place of being cut off from God and from the covenant people in the land of the living. In David's lifetime, this was true. How many times in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel do we see God protect David from being struck down by his enemies into the realm of the dead. But when we turn the page to the book of 1 Kings, we see David is frail and old, and he can't keep warm on his own. And eventually his body gives way, and he dies. And he's buried in a tomb in Jerusalem. In other words... God did allow David to enter the realm of the dead. And by now, unless he was mummified like his forefathers, Jacob and Joseph, we have records of that, his body is completely corrupted, decomposed, with only a decayed skeleton perhaps remaining. This is why on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, the Apostle Peter, we we heard this this morning, in Acts 2, gets up and announces, remember David, who said, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. Well, that David, I'm paraphrasing, His bones are buried beneath your feet right now. We still have his tomb with us. I wish you could go to Jerusalem today and find his tomb. We don't know exactly where it is. But the point that Peter's making is that David has died. His body is decaying in the earth. Paul makes the same case, in fact, 
in Acts 13, in a synagogue of Jews in Pisidian Antioch, all of us will face death. Our bodies will decompose. But what Peter and Paul understood was that Psalm 16 must therefore point beyond David to someone else through whom God would perfectly fulfill his word. And the good news this morning is that a son of David, an heir to his throne, has arisen. Jesus, the divinely anointed king, was not abandoned to the grave. For after he bore the wrath of God on the cross for sinners, long before his bones could be put in an ossuary, a bone box, to decompose, he rose from the dead, defeating the power of sin and death for all who will trust in him. David's, whose bones still lie somewhere in Jerusalem today, will ultimately not be abandoned to the realm of the dead, but will be raised to life through the Son of God, the Son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, none of us know what 2022 will hold. Will this be our last year in the land of the living? I urge you now, while we're still breathing, while your hearts are still beating, to see the beauty of Christ and the sufficiency of his life, his death, his resurrection for you, and to trust him today, to reconcile you to God, to raise you to live with him forever. Finally, David claims, you make known to me the path of life In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David seems to be saying here that he could enter the very presence of God. He could be stationed at the right hand of God. And the right hand was the place of great honor and authority next to a king in the ancient world. By faith in God's promise, just like Abraham David could be declared righteous in the very presence of God. David could, in a very real way, have intimate fellowship with his creator. But in another sense, only the high priest of Israel in the line of Aaron could enter the most holy place where Yahweh had placed his special presence among his people. King David like Moses and countless, countless others, was barred from entering the most holy place of the very presence of God. But I come bringing good news this morning. There is one who is a great high priest who has arisen and secured eternal access for us into God's all-satisfying presence Hebrews 10, 19 through 20. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And Jesus alone 
is now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. And he gives us the fullness of life in himself. As John says, whoever has the Son has life. Psalm 1611 points us to the heart of the gospel, which is God makes known to us the path of life to himself. God saves us from his own terrible judgment for his own wonderful presence. King David also by faith in his heir to the throne, and we get this strong sense from Psalm 110 especially. The Lord said to my Lord, David says, he also will gain access into the eternal joy of God's presence. What about you? Do you have that access this morning and forever? And are you delighting in Christ? In our world today, many are seeking lasting joy, seeking meaning, even after the existentialist philosophers tell us to give up on that quest, people just won't do it. They've got to find a greater meaning in this existence. Between 1970 and 1986, the great German mountaineer, Reinhold Messner, reached the summit of all 14 of the world's Mountains that exceed 8,000 meters in height. He did this without supplemental oxygen, which doctors told him was a ridiculous idea and that no human could actually do. Recently, in 2019, the Nepali mountaineer, Nimstai Purja, often called Nims, although using supplemental oxygen, ah, we won't hold it against him that he had to breathe, Climb to the summit of the peaks above 8,000 meters in seven months. So what Mesner did in 16 years, Nymphs did in seven months. So what drives these guys? What is motivating? Is it just vain self-glorification? I would suggest to you that it's not. And when you start to sit down and and hear their stories, you realize that that's not enough to put them through the kind of torture that they have subjected their bodies to in these incredible feats of strength. Nims gives us his explanation. My challenges are aimed at something bigger than myself. I fight for my people to put the Sherpa community back in the center of world attention. We are great mountaineers, not just porters, that is, carriers of all the equipment for the Western climbers. But I also fight for the protection of the mountains. So what's driving you today? Is it something bigger than yourself? Is it a remarkable people like the Sherpas or the majestic mountains like the Himalayas? Those are big motivations, but they're not big enough. You too actually got it right when they sang... I have climbed the highest mountains only to be with you, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Only life lived with God, now and forever, will be enough to satisfy your deepest longing. 
In closing, I want us to ask two questions that arise from this psalm as we reflect on our lives in 2021 and as we anticipate midnight tonight and all that 2022 could hold in store. First, what is that thing or relationship that, if you're honest, you think you have to have in order to be satisfied? Maybe it's a project. Maybe it's a mission. Maybe it's a new job or more money or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a crazy adventure or health. Or maybe it's just to be respected and thought highly of. David in Psalm 16 confronts us this morning by his own deep satisfaction in God. The Spirit through David, I believe, calls us to repent of our thinking that if only we had that thing or that person, then we'd be content. The Lord could give you that thing or that person, but you will never need it to be satisfied. You will never need it to find joy, the kind of joy that can carry you through anything you face, through anything you lack. That kind of joy is waiting for you in God himself. The church father Augustine said it this way, you awaken our hearts to delight in your praise. You made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. Second, what habits in 2021 have you picked up that deflate your affections for Christ? And what new habits in 2022 can replace the old and stir up your affections for Christ? Take just a few minutes today. I encourage you, when you're alone, uh, moms, you could just lock yourself into the bathroom and ask the Spirit to show you the life-sucking habits that you've picked up that he wants you to set aside and and show you the life-giving habits that you could add into your life this year. Earlier this year, and, and even sometimes occasionally, I find myself more absorbed in a podcast, like sports debate podcasts, than in listening to the very word of God. Maybe the habit you could pick up in 2022 could be reading or listening to the word daily, joining or leading a Bible study, committing to daily time in prayer, or committing yourself afresh to gathering for worship, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, listening to those psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and letting them fill your minds and your affections. Maybe it's memorizing scripture. Maybe it's memorizing the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Maybe it's taking time every day to go outside and enjoy God through his creation. Or maybe it's resolving to be more vocal, to share with others what God has done in your life or to speak the name of Jesus among those who don't know him here in Rasulchema. These habits are never an end in themselves. They're always a means to knowing and loving God and loving neighbor 
for David, Psalm 16, alongside the other Psalms of trust, reveals that he had developed the habit of flooding out his lament with a song of the all-satisfying beauty of God who never abandons. Martin Luther put it this way, and I'll share his words in closing. When you have him, you have all. But you have also lost all when you lose him. Stay with Christ, although your eyes do not see him and your reason does not grasp him.